The this following time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, For more information For your love for us. We thank you, Father God, for your grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your joy that you placed in our life, Lord. Lord, guide us, Lord. Direct us, Lord. Lord, as, as Greg comes this morning to proclaim your word, I pray that you would just be with him. We just ask you, Lord, that we will worship you now in spirit and in truth. Speak to us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As an act of response to the joy that Christ has given us, We can sing in confidence that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's sing this together, church. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus. Name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all on the ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's stand together, let's sing that verse again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on. Sing this out, church. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. The ground is sinking sand. When darkness hides, when darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds with. On Christ the solid rock I stand All of the ground is sinking sand All of the ground is sinking sand His oath is covenant His oath is covenant Support me, support My soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all on the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is in confidence when he shall come 
with trumpet sound will be found in him alone when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may i then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone unless to stand before the throne on christ the solid rock i stand all of the ground is sinking sand all of the ground is sinking sand let's sing the chorus of that song on christ the rock i stand on christ the solid rock i stand all other all other ground Sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. He's the steady anchor, Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. I'll blow through me when my sails have all been torn and in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few I will hold fast to the anchor it will never be Steady one, Christ the sure and steady anchor. While the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle, when it seems the night has won, and deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused. Hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. He's the steady one, Christ the sure and steady anchor. Through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow. Oh, my soul, now lift your eyes to cow. He's our ballast, and this my ballast of assurance. See his love forever prove. I will hold fast to the anchor. the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death when these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath we will cross that great horizon clouds 
night how many people saw the big storm or experienced the big storm that came through right it was crazy in a couple places and I I saw pictures on on Facebook of these trees like almost bending over and that's the picture we see here that in the fury of the storm when we feel like we don't know what's happening we don't we don't have the ability to know what's happening next and we wonder what we can cling on to we cling to Christ the sure and steady anchor amen today church we sing and we celebrate because we know that in the storms of life we have a savior who not only loves us to keep us and call us out of our sin but a Savior who loves us enough to keep us and hold us in his grace. And so today, we can sing in confidence and proclaim this song. Oh no, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go in every high and every low. Because we know that our Savior is holding on to us. Amen. Church, let's sing this in the joy and the confidence of Christ alone. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you are near. And I will fear no is with us for my God is with me if he's with us if my God is with whom then and whom then shall I fear whom then shall I fear oh no you never let go through the calm and through the storm oh no never let go in every high and every low oh no you never let go lord you never let go of me we see his light as i can see a light that is coming for a heart that holds his glorious beyond a glorious light beyond all compare choice because of this there will be an end to these troubles but until that day comes we live to know you here on the earth and i will fear no evil for my god is with me and if my god is with 
then shall I fear no one then shall I fear oh no you never let go through the calm and through the storm oh no you never let go I can see a light Yes, I can see a light That is coming For the heart that holds on And there will be an end To these troubles But until that day comes Still I will praise you Still I will praise you Sing this out, church Oh no, you never let go through the storm oh no you never let go in every high and every low oh no you never let go lord you never let go of me oh no you never let go through the calm and through the storm oh no you never let go in every high and every low let go. Lord, you never let go of me. Preach that truth to yourself, church. Lord, you never let go of me. Sing the words of the old hymn. I stand amazed in the presence. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. extravagantly. So Lord, may we live for you in the confidence knowing whose we are. We are who you call us. We are your sons and we are your daughters. And you have given us a mission to boldly share your gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, equip us, help us do that. As we unpack your word this morning, may you speak through Greg. May you teach us and may you cause our hearts to leap in the joy of knowing you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, church, you can be seated. Children ages four and five can be dismissed to the right-hand side of the worship center this morning.
Well, it's always a great joy of mine to be with you, Abner Creek. And um, how are you doing this morning? Good. You look good. And, uh, and it's always good to, to be here. Um, many of you uh, are familiar with, with Whitney and, and myself and, and now our son, Coram. But for those of you who, who might have um, just be- begun coming to Abner Creek, uh, my name is Greg Mathis, and I, um, I was a youth pastor here for a number of years. Those were sweet years, very sweet years that the Lord gave us here. And I was reflecting recently about how much life happened uh, for, for Whitney and I during this, this time. This church is very dear to our heart, and it is very much home for us. So um, I'm so thankful for, for all of you. Uh, but I was also reflecting on just the, um, the unique situation that Abner Creek finds itself in because of the sovereignty of God and because of his plan for the nations. Uh, I'm thinking of, of the believers who worshipped here, very near here in, in the 1800s and all throughout the 1900s up to today. Many of them would never have said that, that one day this church will be located near a big factory that's going to bring people in from all over the world and, and companies that are going to come because of that. And it's going to be located next to a, an interstate highway that's going to come. And next thing you know, there are going to be all kinds of uh, communities built around us. But, but those people, as they believed the gospel, imperfect as they were, as they persevered in the things of the scriptures, they were providing for us today what we have now and that is an opportunity to reach the nations that have very much come to us, that have come to our doorstep. So I pray that we would continue to, to think about how we might reach our community, our neighborhood, and the nations, and, and how blessed we are to have this heritage here and to have so many opportunities. I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 6, um, as well as Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to read Isaiah 55 first, uh, just a few verses from there, Isaiah chapter 55. But then we'll be uh, spending most of our time in John chapter 6 in what is called the Bread of Life Discourse. And of course, um, as you remember, during the teachings of Jesus, he had many I am statements. He said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. And today we'll be looking at that I am statement. Of course, is what Jesus is doing when he gives these I am statements is he is basically giving a dog whistle to the people Say, remember the God of the Old Testament who said, I am that I am. Jesus is equating himself with that God. He is saying, I am not simply a good rabbi. I am not simply a good teacher. I am. I am he. I am the one that you need. I am God. The God-man, the only person that is able to make satisfaction on our behalf to God the Father is the God-man, Christ Jesus, the one who is fully God, fully man, lived the perfect life that we failed to live, died the death that we deserved, and now lives for us interceding at the right hand of the Father. Read these words with me in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk and money, Without price. Why do you spend your life for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good 
and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. And it's important to remember what kind of covenant God makes. God makes one-way covenants. Because, of course, the people of Israel were never faithful enough to keep up their end of the deal. But God keeps his covenant to save. And then, of course, we look down in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. And I'll read also. Um, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but the water to the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I Sent it. There is no question about the faithfulness of God and the effectiveness of His Word to accomplish what He would have it to do. It will accomplish His purposes. And as we, we remember at Matthew 121, His name will be called Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to Your Word and as we preface this, this John chapter 6, bread of life discourse that Jesus spoke to his disciples and to the people who were following him around, looking for another rabbi. Lord, we, we remember this connected passage in, in Isaiah 55 that says, why would, we, why would we labor for the bread that does not satisfy? Why would we spend our money on, on that which is not bread? But there's this invitation, come. Come, eat this bread. Come to the waters, everyone who thirsts. And we have this confidence from you that, that if we come to the living bread, Christ Jesus himself, if we have the living water that he offers, we will never go thirsty. We will never go hungry. And so, Lord, as we look to your word, I pray that we would go away changed for the good, that we would see how it is that you would have us to understand these words of Jesus. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I wonder if you'd read with me uh, John chapter 6, verses beginning in verse 22. Uh, one of the great challenges of reading gospel narrative, of reading these, these great uh, stories, is that many of them are connected, and it becomes very difficult to know where to begin and where to end. So I'm going to do my best to read this section that, that seems to be connected together, but also to draw uh, a little bit from before it and a little bit from after it, because we understand that the context, well, the, the, the situation in the Gospel of John that this passage is found in is, is just as important as the words themselves for our, for our understanding them. So read with me beginning in verse 22. On the next day... The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So in other words, the people wake up, they notice, hey, the disciples and Jesus only came in one boat. Uh, Jesus is gone and he didn't leave in that boat. So where is he? Other boats from Tiberias came near the place. 
uh, where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, so somehow Jesus got to the other side of the sea in ways that they cannot explain, which is no surprise to us, is the man who walks on water. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Sounds an awfully lot like Isaiah 55. This, this food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? A very foundational, earth-shaking verse of Scripture we find right here. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. It's very important that we understand what's going on there because is Jesus telling us that there is a work that we should do, that, that somehow we are saved by, by works? That's certainly what they're asking him. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who, whom he has sent. And they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe? It's a very, a very uh, interesting thing to ask him right after he fed the 5,000, right after he walked on water, and right after he miraculously transported himself from one side of the sea to the other. They come to him and they ask, what sign will you do for us? that we may believe in you, demonstrates their hardness of heart. There is no sign that could cause them to suddenly believe. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come to do, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that will? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise it up on the last day. And of course, I could go on in the very next verse. He says, I am the bread who came down. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, he says, I am living bread. All of this is connected, but we, of course, for the, the constraints of time, we have to limit ourselves to, to see what it is that Jesus is teaching in this verse. We understand from our knowledge of the Scriptures that the purpose of, of the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is to tell the story of a God who tirelessly pursues a people so that out of the whole of humanity, he might save some. He might save a portion, a remnant, just like he did with the people of Israel. We see, that it, we see this in the Garden of Eden. 
with Adam and Eve when they sin. They are running far from him. But the the story of the Garden of Eden is not a story of how uh, Adam and Eve came running after God, but is how God came running after them in the midst of their sin. God pursues them even while they are hiding. We see this in the long history of Israel as God continues to hold fast to the covenant that he made with his people even when they are willing to break it with him. And we see it later, of course, in this passage We see it taught in the book of Titus when Paul reminded Titus that for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people. Why? A people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. God is on a mission to pursue a people through whom he might bring himself glory. God is totally and utterly God-centered, and it is good for us that he is. Because what else should he set his affections on but his own glory? It is the only thing that is pure in this world. It is the only thing that is right. One of the peculiar realities of the gospel, though, one of the most undeserved blessings of how God comes after us is that he treats us in this way. He offers to us himself in such a way that it satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. I think many people think of God in an opposite way. They think of God as if if I'm going to have God... And if I'm going to have eternal life, then there are a lot of things that I really, really like and really, really bring me a lot of joy that I'm going to have to give up. And that somehow following Jesus is going to limit my joy. Now, make no mistake, this is a costly life. No man can follow Christ unless he takes up his cross and follows him. And there will be things in one sense that we will lose for following Christ. We may lose lose status and we may lose friends and we may lose money. But what we gain is eternally and it it is infinitely more joy-giving than anything that we could have in this life. God does not come to us and offer us the carrot, dangling the carrot of eternity in front of us if we will only agree to live a life of joylessness. This idea points to a fundamental misunderstanding of what God offers us. He did not come to to dangle this carrot in front of us, but instead to train our hearts, to tune our hearts to new and better and deeper and more fulfilling desires. We are far too easily satisfied by lesser things. But with this backdrop painted... Jesus just fed the 5,000. He just walked on water and he just transported himself from one side of the sea to the other. We look at John 6 to see how is he going to, to weave these realities into this new teaching about the bread of life. And of course, part in John chapter 6, if you look down at verse 5, if you're uh, reading along in your copy of God's Word, John, John 6, chapter 5, just before he multiplies the bread and the fish in this wonderful miracle, he takes this lunch that could have scarcely fed five people and he uses it to feed 5,000. This happens. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where are we 
to buy bread so that these people may eat. You see what he's doing? He's testing them. He's testing them of their knowledge of their own book, the Old Testament. Jesus, the true and better rabbi, the good rabbi, the bread of life himself, has come to walk among them, and he asked them this probing question, where are we to buy bread? He's essentially asking him, do you remember in Sunday school, Isaiah 55, come Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. And now Jesus asks these people, where are we to buy bread? It's a question with two meanings. And he's about to give them... a. A physical representation of bread that will fill their stomachs so that he may teach them about the real bread that will cause them to never again hunger. The bread that he gives, the bread that is indeed himself. This chapter begins, this passage begins in verse 22. And it continues in this way. And this is what would be, I suppose, my first point. Number one, this bread is needed. It's important to recognize that the the people who are following Jesus around, and yes, even his very own disciples, do not even understand what they need or how bad they need it. They ask him the wrong questions, demonstrating how far off course they are. Verses 22, this happens. On the next day, the crowd that remained, they, they saw him go from one side, or they saw that he had gone from one side of the lake to the other. Uh, verse 24, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, they themselves got into boats and went seeking him. Verse 25, when they found him, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they call him teacher, even though they are questioning his ways and asking for more signs. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So see what Jesus is doing here. He is examining their hearts and he is showing them, he is telling to them, this is what is in your heart and this is why it's wrong. Demonstrating that he himself is the I am that he is claiming to be because he knows the hearts of man and he knows the the content of what is in our hearts. He is able to explain for us our own motives, even when we cannot explain our motives to ourselves. The people are coming to him with wrong motives, and they are coming looking for the wrong thing. They have the wrong motives because they are following Jesus around, because they remember his works. They remember, yes, that he did some signs, but he also filled us with bread. So I wonder if he can do this kind of thing again. Let's see if we can get our curiosity satisfied. Let's see if we can be entertained a bit more by this man who will call rabbi, but will continue to question and ask him uh, what it is that he's doing here. But not only do they continue to uh, pursue Jesus with wrong motives, but they pursue the wrong thing. They are seeking what could only meet the needs of the day. They were asking him for another sign. They were seeking things that could only meet the needs that they thought they had. The hunger they felt It seemed so real and present, but Jesus understood that their need was much deeper than that. He understood that they have a need that perhaps they were not even aware of, and that is a need for eternal satisfaction, and it is the same need that we have today. The very reason that we seek after status and and, and even fame or the next promotion or another child or the relationship or the degree or whatever the case may be sometimes is because we are trying to fill a hole that is God-sized 
and is God-shaped. And until we find that Christ is the only satisfaction for the deep and abiding needs that we have in our heart, we will continue to seek the wrong things for the wrong motives. But the people seeking for what they think they need, it plays right into the hand of what Jesus is doing and what God is doing here in the Gospel of John to advance his salvation purpose. In Jesus' ministry, we see that before this passage begins, John tells of how Jesus fed the 5,000. Now they're asking, or now he's asking them, where do we buy bread? And the imagery is so rich here. The picture that should come into our minds is one of sheep wandering far from the fold, but the good shepherd, the good shepherd going after the one, leaving the 99 to bring them back. Just as God came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, even as they were hiding, the Lord Jesus comes seeking after sinners that they may be saved. Think of the depth of this. Think of the depth of this teaching. If the solution was the death of God's very own Son. If the solution was God taking on flesh, coming and walking among us, and dying on the cross, if that was the solution, how serious was the problem? The problem was dire. The problem was deep. And the problem was incredibly serious. Our sin was so dark and so black and so evil that it took the very death of the Son of God to make us right. That kind of doctrine breeds humility. We need this bread. We, like the people, if Jesus himself were walking among us, let us not be too prideful to think that we would not be just like them, asking Jesus the wrong questions having the wrong motives, all the while he is coming after us. Secondly, this bread has been secured for you. This bread has been secured for all who will believe, all who will turn and look on Christ for their salvation. If this bread is what we need in order to have eternal life, if we, if we recognize that this bread is what we need, then a natural question arises how may we come into this bread? How may we have it? How may we get a portion of it? And there are only, in the history of all of humanity, there have only been two possible reasons, two possible solutions, rather. One is to attempt to satisfy God's requirements and to make ourselves right before God. And the second option is to rest in God's finished work. Let's look. This is what the people are doing themselves. Look what they say in verse in verse um, 28, they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Think about what they're doing. They're treating Jesus as just another rabbi. They're saying, hey, here's a new rabbi in town. He seems to have some peculiar things about him. He seems to be able to do some things that we can't quite explain. So maybe we ought to listen to him to see what new teaching he has brought us from God. Perhaps he has a new insight, something novel, something that we haven't heard before, that another rabbi has never taught us before. Perhaps he will tell us the, the golden bullet, or the, the silver bullet, rather. I'm mixing metaphors. Perhaps he will give us the silver bullet and tell us what it is that we must do, what command we must follow to be doing the work of God. 
But what they don't realize is that Jesus is not a rabbi like they are used to. He is the true and better rabbi. He is the rabbi who, yes, comes to teach them, but not to teach them about what they must do. He comes to teach them about what he is doing to secure their place in the kingdom of God. He's not telling them another work that they must do. He's telling them of the works that he is now doing. They ask him, what, mer- what, what work must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus, in a very clever twist of their own words, he says, this is the work of God that you believe. Think about the depth of what he's saying. They're asking him, what must we do to be saved? What, what work must we accomplish to be saved? And he says, this is the work that I am doing in you that you believe. It is deep and rich and ground-shaking. In the context, these, these truths make complete sense. The immediate passage highlights the hardness of heart that the people have. And it must be broken through. This hardness of heart must be broken through by the love of Christ poured out on the cross before people will come to Christ fully. The, the notion of light and darkness of, of, of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, this, this theme that is all the way through all of, of John's writings is on full display here. You notice if you ever read through the Gospel of John, certain evil things happen at night in the dark and certain good things happen in the day. And John, you know, if, if you read 1 John, uh, there's this theme of light and darkness and walking in the light as he is in the light. And this, we see this on full display here. The hardness of heart of the people must be broken through before they will come to Christ, just like if one is going to plunder the house of a strong man, he must first be bound. And Jesus comes to bind the strong man so that he may plunder the house of our heart. He says these things. They had just, uh, he had just multiplied the, to feed the 5,000. They had multiplied the food. He, they had just seen him walk on water. He had just been transported from one side to the other. In chapter 5, he had healed at the pool on the Sabbath. He had told them that he uh, was equal with God. And he was only to do more and more miracles. As the book progresses, and still they come to him after all of these signs. And they say... What miracle will you now perform that we may believe? It's very presumptuous of them to think that if they only had just a little more evidence that they would somehow suddenly come over to his team. But Jesus says a different work must be done in your heart. This passage contains an incredibly high concentration of the word give. For some reason in the book of John, Right here, this word, the, the, the Greek word didomi, but it means, it means to give, is somehow concentrated for some reason for 11 times. It's repeated. Eight of these times it comes from the, work, uh, for, from the mouth of Jesus, which highlights, which highlights what Jesus gives, that he does the work, that he has come. And, of course, in verse 27, Jesus says, I will come to give you the food that endures to eternal life. And this is connected to Isaiah 55. And insofar as believing in Jesus is a work that we do, it is only a work that we can do because we have been enabled by Him. Because our heart uh, has been plundered by His grace. And we respond to Him freely saying, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. This understanding, it does a few things. It breeds humility. We among all people would be right there with the people and even with the disciples saying, 
what sign will you do now? Understanding our hopeless and helpless state before God helps us to rightly consider who we are and who we aren't. Seeing ourselves as incapable of satisfying God's demands, of doing some kind of work, of understanding enough or, or something else coming to some new conclusion, it keeps us far from being tempted to boast in ourselves or what we have understood or what we have gained or what we have earned. Instead, all boasting is directed toward Christ and His finished work on the cross. Secondly, it breeds worship. This kind of understanding of what Jesus does in our hearts breeds worship. Just as, in, just as the Garden of Eden told a story of a God who came seeking after sinners who were running away from him. And just as the story of Jonah told a story of a God who, who was pursuing a rebel to bring him back and to place him back on course, back on God's track, directed toward God's will. Just as the entire story of Israel recounts a a history of a people who were faithless and running away from God and he, he he, he pursues them still. And just as the story of Paul remembers the tale of a man who was persecuting Christians, was knocked off his horse, blinded by the glory of God and made to see again only to write most of of, uh, the New Testament letters. We see ourselves as those in whom God has worked the very faith that He requires. We will see that this God is God. We will become thankful, humble, submissive, and awe-filled servants. Friends, we are nothing more but the characters in the divine play that is going out that is going on in our world that is meant to bring God glory. We are nothing but the characters through whom God gets his glory. Just as the characters of a play can only point glory toward the playwright, so we have been placed here in space and time, a portion of all of humanity that he has redeemed so that he may get his glory. Glory, And until we understand this, until we understand the purpose of our life to simply bring God the maximum amount of glory, our hearts will continue to be at unease. We will continue to look for satisfaction elsewhere. We will continue to seek purpose, the next rung on the ladder, until we see that the Lord has ordained our lives, that we are simply clay in the hands of God of the potter. Thirdly, this bread satisfies. This is a deep and abiding truth of what it is that Jesus does in his own provision. And we remember that Jesus in feeding the 5,000 has put the notion of bread and satisfaction and and a full stomach, he has put this notion on their mind Not only does he leverage that recent miracle, but he does more. He uses it to teach them of the true meaning of God providing manna in the wilderness. Look what he says here. Jesus said to him in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. What Jesus is saying to them, he's saying that remember this history, that this moment in the history of Israel when God provided manna and it was just enough because it would spoil at the end of the day, he provided manna and the people could go out and collect it and and eat this strange bread that came down from heaven. He says, that is the shadow. That is just the, the foretaste of what God is doing now through me. 
He said, God has provided to you bread that satisfies for a day so that your taste and your expectations may be trained to one day look for a bread that will satisfy forever. And that bread is now here. And that bread is me. Come, come and eat of this bread. Would you come? Jesus wants us not to misunderstand his purpose. He is not here simply to meet our physical needs. In love, Jesus works in this passage to to realign their focus off of the here and now and toward the things that are eternal and the things that last. Perhaps you've heard someone say that it is possible uh, or that they know someone who is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Perhaps you've heard that phrase. I'm sure that you have. And we all know what that means. It it is possible to to, to have our heads so far deep into theory and so far deep into some kind of theology textbook that we don't even know how to sit down and be a decent human being. I've probably been that person from time to time. But what Christ is saying here, or the lesson that we perhaps should learn here, is that if you are truly heavenly minded, if you, are, if you are setting your minds on the things of God and the eternal things that are the only source of satisfaction for humanity, if you are really heavenly minded, you will be earthly good. You know why? It is because the most deep and real needs of people are not the needs that will end at the end of today. The they are the, the, the needs that will go on throughout all of eternity. So he says, if you're you're setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, if you're setting your mind on the things of the gospel, it will be good to those around you that you know the gospel because you have the key to their most deep and most enduring need. So clearly the thrust here of this passage, it deals with the salvation of sinners. The bread Jesus is offering to the people is himself the only acceptable mediator between God and man. Christ had lived the the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve. He rose on the third day to demonstrate just how thoroughly he had defeated sin. And if whoever will call on the name of the Lord, they have the benefits that he earned on our behalf. But he says this as well here. the, 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 The passage teaches this. There is another layer This layer involves our person-to-person subjective satisfaction with these truths. The question that confronts us today is, is this gospel enough for you? Is Christ enough for you? Does the satisfaction that he has provided on the cross and has told us about in his word, is that satisfying? To you. And if it is, then that is evidence that you have been brought from death to life. If it is not, it's evidence of one of two things that perhaps you have never come. You have never partaken of the, the bread of life that Jesus is offering. Or perhaps it means that you, you are indeed a believer. You have accepted this, 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 this salvation, this, uh, this atonement for your sins. That you are now so distracted by the cares of the world that the thoughts of Christ seem so far from you. And he is beckoning you now, come back to the water. Come back to the bread. Jesus poses his words here in love for us because he knows that we today are just as easily distracted as the people back then, as his very own disciples. 
We are just as distracted as, uh, by, by the wants of status and by the wants of, of, of the approval of other people or whatever the case may be as the people then were hungry for food after a long day of listening to this rabbi teach on the hillside. To put it into our words today, we might say this, don't settle for the things that only satisfy temporarily. There is so much more in Christ. We are far, far too easily satisfied. God offers to us himself. And if we think that something else will fill that hole, we are on a fool's errand. We perhaps have not known Christ. Part of coming to Christ involves having our hearts and our affections tuned toward true and better joys. Indeed, listen to the words of this man. And as I, as I begin to close, Henry Skugel, he said this in a book he wrote called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. He said that the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. This is the answer to all of our questions. Am I a good man? Am I a good woman? Am I a good dad? Am I a good mom? Am I enough? what is it that your affections are set on? Because that is the only mark that defines our life. How foolish would it be if we reached the end of our life and someone could appropriately put on our gravestone, he worked hard for that boat. He worked hard for that vacation. He worked hard to raise a good kid. Are those enough? Or is there a more deep and abiding joy to be had in this life? And I'm here to tell you that there is. If the verdict were rendered tonight, what does my heart most desire? Is the answer Christ? And of course, this is a moment when I have to confess to you that, 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 that I am not always living out the very thing that I am preaching. Sometimes the last thought on my mind when I lay my head down to sleep and the first thought that is on my mind when I pick my head up from the bed the next morning is not just the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. But what I am saying is that what Christ has brokered on the, on the cross is the, is the ability that we now have to tune our hearts toward joys that are more full and more satisfying than the things that this world has to offer. It is the only thing that makes any sense out of suffering. It is the only thing that makes any sense out of separation. Why would you go to the other side of the world and separate yourself from family and from comfort and from pleasure if there is not a more deep and abiding joy? And there is And his name is Jesus Christ. So I'll leave you with these words from Isaiah 55. Those of you perhaps who are believers, and you know you have the confidence, the the, the Spirit testifies inside of your heart that you do know Christ, but you're also convicted right now. Because that same Spirit lives in you, you you are convicted of your waywardness. I say to you, come, everyone who thirsts, be satisfied. And I say to the one perhaps this morning who is coming, and and if you're just honest with yourself, you're saying in your own heart, I have never so known Christ to be my only source of satisfaction. I have never known him to meet my deepest needs. I, I perhaps grew up in the church and my parents wanted me to be a good kid, but I have never eaten 
of this bread of life. I have never drunk deeply of this living water. The offer to you stands. For those who have ears to hear, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk with no money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me and hear so that your soul may live. Let's pray. Lord, you were so good to us in giving us the gospel. You have extended us this offer that anyone, anyone who sees the gospel and who sees Christ and desires him and comes to him and pleads, Lord, save me. These, Lord, are yours. And we know from your word, that you are the kind of God who is faithful to your covenant, just as you were faithful to the people of Israel, even when they were wandering far away. You, Lord, you are the God who keeps covenant. You are the God who keeps your end of the deal and who holds on to us even when we are not holding on to you so that we can have this confidence. We can know because you are that kind of God that whoever comes... Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Lord, I pray as earnestly as I know how that if there is one this morning who has never come to so know Christ, they have never come and and drunk deeply of the waters of what you have accomplished on the cross. Your death in our place, in our place condemned you stood. I pray that this this person or these, these people would come today and would respond to your offer of grace, would drink deeply, and that you have given us this promise that when we do drink of this eternal water, there comes to be inside of us a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. It never goes dry. You offer us yourself bread, not like the manna in the wilderness that that decayed overnight, but, but bread that endures to eternal life. And you have promised that for those who are believers, they will be indwelt by your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, keep us, back on, keep us always on the path uh, that leads to you, always running back to the cross where we first received our redemption. Lord, I pray that, that we believers would, would recognize the ways that we need to repent again to return to Christ. And I pray for those who who perhaps have never so known Christ, Lord, they would respond today. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In the next couple of moments, we're going to have a moment of reflection. Ethan and and our uh, musicians are going to play. What we do here typically is is to to sit and reflect for a moment on the Word of God and on on the things that we are singing. And then after that, you'll stand. If at any time during this time you, you would like to, to respond in some kind of tangible way, I'll make myself available. You can certainly come and, and speak to me. Um, uh, Scott and, and Matt are both gone. Ethan's up here. You're, you're well served by all of these men, but I'd love to help if there's a way that I can. Um, and if there's a, perhaps if this, if this uh, stage would, would be to you a, a venue for you to kneel and pray to the Lord, then use it in that way. Uh, But let's reflect now on the Word of God.
the everlasting God, our Maker. From the exodus to exile, the same. In the wilderness and wandering, the Savior. You are faithful from the garden to the grave. Heaven and earth, heaven and earth proclaim. You are like one, you are the one who saves. Heaven and earth, heaven and earth proclaim. You are the one, you are the one who saves. I stand as we sing, you have loved us from the foundation of the world. You have loved us from the world's foundation You have felt the fabric of the fall You exposed the light of separation You saved us You have torn the veil once and for all Heaven and earth, heaven and earth Just as in my time here as a youth minister, you continue to demonstrate your patience with me every time you listen to me preach. So I appreciate that. I appreciate Pastor Scott in, uh, in, in giving me the opportunity to come today. As a matter of fact, he, he texted me this morning and told me that he was praying for me. And I thought about texting him back and saying, oh, that was today. But um, I didn't. That was, it was only about 30 minutes before the service started. But uh, anyway, you're well served by Scott and by Matt and by Ethan. And these are good days at Abner Creek. 
Uh, thank you for, for allowing me to be with you. I want to pray, and, uh, and you can go in peace. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. He, uh, he uh, has, has given uh, everything that we need, Lord. It, it demonstrates, uh, demonstrates how deep our need was on the cross, that it took the very death of the Son of God to make us right. But you are willing to crush the sun so that we may be made right. And Lord, as, as difficult as these truths are to get our heads around, Lord, they are good for us. And we thank you for providing them and giving us, as your word says, everything that we need for life and godliness through the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word uh, written, recorded for us. We pray these things, God, in the name of Christ. Amen.